Amen. Let's take our Bibles, please. Let's talk about mercy. Let's go to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, chapter 18. Such an appropriate song for what we want to be talking about this morning. Matthew, chapter 18. There's a story that Jesus gives in Matthew, chapter 18. I want you to follow along as I read. Matthew 18, starting with verse 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus said unto him, I say not unto you until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one of was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and his children, and all that he had in payment to be made." The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. Let's jump over to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, holding your finger in Matthew 18. Jump to Luke chapter 17 and see a parallel account where Jesus is speaking about the same type of concept. Luke chapter 17, please, starting with verse 1. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he be cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. What a challenging thought. Where Jesus is speaking in this text about the idea of forgiveness, but it's hard. Charlie Hanley is a gentleman that grew up in Florida area, and as he got in a little bit later in his life, he got born again, he got saved, and he made this commitment to the Lord that he would share the gospel, or at least a track, every single day of his life. Well, this one year, he decided that he was going to make that goal two days, uh, two times every day of his life. And the story goes that Charlie was sharing the Word of God and went with a friend of his to a home of that friend's co-worker. They sat down. They started talking to him. Charlie's friend was taking the lead in the visit since he knew the fella. So Charlie decided that he would just sit quietly and show his normal appearance, his normal face, smiling, looking pleasant, and praying inwardly that this person would respond to the gospel. As the time went by and they were talking, that person that they were sharing the gospel with would look every so often at Charlie with a quizzical look. He had never seen anybody with such a sweet smile and peace in their eyes. And so they were sharing the gospel, and he would look again. Talking some more, he would look again. Finally, after the one person made the presentation of the gospel, he said to this gentleman that they were talking to, he said, would you like to accept Christ as your Savior? And his response was, if that's what that man has, then I want it. And he pointed to Charlie, who didn't give any type of verbal testimony, but just his demeanor, just his peace. You see, Charlie wasn't without troubles. Just a year or so before that, Charlie had gone through a great tragedy. His adult daughter had been kidnapped. His adult daughter had been taken, literally tortured by the person who kidnapped her, and even to the point that they beheaded her. Charlie had to deal with what happened afterwards, taking care of trying to put his life together after his daughter had been murdered. 
And Charlie had to sit in court and hear what had happened to his daughter. Charlie knew what he also had to do, is he had to somehow share the gospel with that person. He went to after the person was in prison and sought him out, told him he forgives him of, the, of what he had done to him personally, and then shared the gospel with him. Charlie had a peace of God that passes all understanding that wasn't hindered by harboring hatred and bitterness. That he lived out exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18. Jesus is talking to disciples like us. And he's saying you need to forgive. Now, most all of us have never had something so tragic as what Charlie did. And yet we've had instances where people have said something about us. Somebody has gossiped. A family member has done us some harm, lied about us, done something. Some here look back and they say that their parents showed favoritism or they were abused as a child. Some of you were abused physically, sexually in your childhood. There are others who are going through issues where they've had conflicts with co-workers, with people at church. They've had other believers do them dirty. And they sit here when we come to worship, and the big question is, are you living what Jesus told you to do? Forgiving others who have hurt you. The passage that Jesus, that we read that Jesus is speaking, it's really insightful because he gives several reasons why we need to be willing to forgive. One of the first reasons that I see is because we all offend and are in need of forgiveness. We ourselves will need forgiveness at some point. Therefore, we should be willing to forgive others. The passage makes it very clear because it's a story where Jesus is talking about an earthly, an earthly story that has a spiritual meaning. We call those parables. And in this story, he's talking about a servant who owes his master an awful lot. This master says, it's judgment day. You need to pay up. The man can't pay up. He just can't because his, his debt is so great. The analogy is very, very clear. Because Jesus starts off and he had said, this is the kingdom of God. This is the way it works. In other words, this is how God operates right now. God is saying to us that we're going to be held accountable one day. He's the ruler in this story who's going to make us come before him one day. And when we come before him and give account, we are indebted to God. The debt literally has the idea of our sinfulness. As God looks at us, he sees us as sinful creatures who are in desperate need of some type of forgiveness because it is impossible to pay God what we owe him for our lying, for our stealing, for our anger, for our disobedience, for our cussing, for our cursing, for our evil thoughts. We have all violated the simple Ten Commandments multiple times, multiple times, over and over again. And so we have a great indebtedness to God. That's the same thing that Jesus brought in Luke 17. Did you catch that first phrase? He says, it is impossible that offenses won't come. They come. We, we do it. We get offended. We offend others. It's a part of our human society. It's a part of our lifestyle. Some family member will tick us off, and we probably tick them off just as well. Some parent has disappointed, and we have probably disappointed them as well. And so he says, that's the way life goes. But he says, you've got to be careful. That doesn't give an excuse to go out and just to, to crush people and to hurt people and to ignore people just because we know it's a part of our life doesn't mean we have a green light to go out and hurt. 
He said, warns, he says, be careful that you don't strive to hurt one another. Take heed unto yourselves. So we know that one reason why we need to be forgiving is we're going to need forgiveness ourselves. Another reason that's given in this text or illustrated is because we who are believers, those of you who have already called upon Christ to be your Savior, you have already become born again. You have been forgiven of far greater offenses against God than any offense somebody on earth can do against you. The story makes it very clear. When he says that this man who is standing before his judge, he owes him 10,000 talents. As if you are standing before God, how great is your debt to God? Just to give you the figures from last week. Let's see if you remember. How much is 10,000 talents in Bible days? Anybody remember? 16 years is not 10,000, but one talent. Okay, 10,000 talents is 160,000 years of income. It's an impossibility. You can't pay that back. Our sin, our anger, our lying, our disobedience to our parents is far beyond anything that we can pay God back by coming to church, being good, giving money. The wages of our sin is death, separation from God Almighty. We, we can't make it to heaven on our own. We can't, uh, can't absolve our own indebtedness to God by baptism, by going to church, by giving money, by being nice people. We should do some of those things. It's appropriate, but that's not going to take away our sin. Our sin is too great. Our offense against God. The man pleads for mercy. And not because he put anything in the plate, not because he, he was a good guy, but the passage says the Lord, the servant was moved with compassion. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. This is an illustration of that God is moved with compassion. And the master not only was moved with compassion to say, I'll free you from what you deserve, but it says he forgave him the entire debt. It's only by God's grace that we are forgiven of our lying, our cheating, our stealing, our anger, our cussing, our evil thoughts, our jealousies. It's only by God's grace, God's mercy, that he would save us, that he would forgive us. And so in this story, we have this truth very clear. Jesus is saying to us, we need far greater forgiveness than anybody who offends us will need from us. And God gives it. God forgives us. And not only does he forgive us by giving us salvation, he keeps on, as we said last week, he keeps on forgiving us every time we come to him on a daily basis and say, I did it again. Joyce's song had that idea that there was a phrase, and I forget how it went, but it was, I need your mercies because even though you freed me, I keep on going back to things. And your mercies keep on coming. That's what we're experiencing now. That's what this one gal experienced who had made a mess of her life. She had gotten into some type of all kinds of evil stuff. And she didn't know as a believer if God would still forgive her and still love her. So she asked the pastor to come over and sit down and talk with her. He tried to share scriptures with her, showed her 1 John 1, 9 that we talked about last week. About how the Lord is willing to forgive us and to keep on cleansing us. But she was just so distraught and she was so struggling with, how can God keep on loving me? The pastor noticed there on one of her end tables was a picture of a college-age young lady. He asked who that was, and this discouraged woman, all of a sudden a smile came across her face, and she says, that's my daughter. 
And she went over and got the picture, and she's looking lovingly into this picture of her daughter. And the pastor asked, he said, Is, was she a perfect daughter? Oh, no, but she's a wonderful daughter. Is there, is there any time that you didn't want to love her? Oh, no. I, as a parent, I loved her all the time, and I would do anything for her. Well, do you plan on not inviting her home ever again? Do you plan on, you know, disowning her? What's wrong with you, preacher? She's my daughter. I will always love her. And the preacher said, very simply, God has your picture on his mantle too. God loves us. And we can go and get that mercy and that grace. And we need it far more than some people who we've who've come and say, you know, please forgive me for the hurt I've caused. Third reason in this text. Third reason is very clear. By, because forgiving others is our spiritual duty. It's our spiritual duty. Now in this text, he's commanded it. I say unto you that you need to forgive. Go, to, go back over to the Luke 17 passage. It is interesting how it unfolds with all that's there in the rest of the passage. Luke 17, we already were read verses 1 through 4, where he's commanded us to forgive those who trespass, who come and say, I'm sorry, to take heed unto ourselves. The apostles, when they hear that, after he's commanded them to forgive, and even says you need to do it seven times in one day, look at the next phrase. How do the, re- do the disciples respond in the next verse? What do they do? What do they say? What's that? What do they ask for? They give us faith. In other words, they're saying, this is really hard to do. We don't know if we have enough faith to forgive somebody who really ticks us off. We don't know if we can forgive that brother or sister who have done this so many times to us. How can I possibly forgive my parent who abused me? How can I get over a spouse who was unfaithful to me? How can I forgive a parent who abandoned me? Give me more faith. And Jesus responds by going into this this illustration that he says, I know it is hard for you to do, but he goes, he says, hey, listen, if you have the faith of a mustard seed. Now, let me pause and point out something. We are just like those disciples. We struggle with this aspect of forgiving. And already some of you have put into your mind, I will forgive this, this, this person, but I can't that person. You're already thinking that. You already have that in your mind. You're already doing it with the disciples. You're thinking like Peter at times. Isn't this magnanimous that I have forgiven so many people? And Peter's thought was, this is wonderful if we forgive people seven times. The Pharisees taught only three times. I am doing a wonderful job, Peter was saying, because I'm going seven times. And we know that Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you've got to do it much more. I expect you to do it much more than the Pharisees and much more than you anticipate. So some of us, we're like Peter, we put limits. I will forgive my, my spouse. I will forgive my mate until they cross this line where that's it. I've forgiven them enough. I've forgiven my kid enough. I, that's it. I'm... Do- And we operate that way. And Jesus is saying, now, wait a minute. Stop. 
There are some here who struggle with the idea of mis- and they misunderstand forgiveness. They think if I forgive that person, what I'm telling them that it was no big deal what you did to me. That is not what forgiveness says. Forgiveness is not saying it wasn't a big deal. If it wasn't a big deal, then there's no problem, no forgiveness is needed. Forgiveness is acknowledging that I was hurt. That you did something to me. And it hurt me enough. And I'm not saying to you, it's no big deal, forget about it. That's not what we're saying when we, when we exercise forgiveness. We're not committing to somebody to say, it was okay what you did to me. It wasn't okay what that person did to you in abuse. It wasn't okay what they did when they abandoned. It wasn't okay when they weren't faithful. It wasn't okay when they lied to you. Forgiving them is not saying it's okay, it's no big deal. Forgiving them, some say, is only going to happen if I feel like I'm going to be forgiving. If I don't feel like I'm forgiving them, if it's based on my heart, my feelings, then I'm not going to bother forgiving because I just don't feel like it yet. My friend, we don't, aren't supposed to be obeying Christ based on how we feel. Okay? You don't feel like going to work half the time. But you still go. You don't feel like coming and worship at times. Let's be honest. You get up this morning, go outside. I didn't feel like showing up. I just lost my job, didn't I? (laughs) We don't feel like doing certain things, praying. You don't feel like giving out the gospel. You don't feel like being generous at times. At times you don't feel like correcting your children. At times you don't feel like, okay, I'm going to be loving and caring in my, in my home. But you do it because it is right. So Jesus is talking to the disciples who are saying it's way too hard for us. And we don't feel like it at times. And Jesus says to them, he says, if you have the very little amount of faith, you can do phenomenal things. If you have the faith of the seed of the mustard seed, you can move mountains. In the context that he is talking about, he's talking about, do I have it within me to forgive somebody? You have enough faith. You're a believer. You've been forgiven. You can forgive. You can do the impossible. You can do the incredible. You can do what, what others don't expect, what others will not fathom. You're a believer. You have the faith. You have the ability to forgive somebody. And then these guys here, he goes on as he's doing it. He basically says, hey, listen, you're asking the wrong question. Notice what he adds to it. Another parable. Verse 7. Which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle will say unto him by and by when he has come in the field, hey, go sit down to meet. And uh, will, but rather you say unto him, hey, make ready wherewith I may sup. And, gird my, and you gird yourself and you serve me till I have eaten and drunken and afterwards you get to eat and drink. Doth he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you shall have done all those things which are commanded unto you, you will say we are unprofitable servants because we have simply done what was our duty. In context, this is forgiving other people. It's not based on how you feel. It's not based on what you want. It's based upon you as a servant. This is your spiritual duty to forgive individuals. Even though it's hard. Even though it's difficult. 
There are several Bible truths that we can just collect right at this moment about forgiveness. Number one is this. Forgiving others is not to be based on how we feel. Forgiving others is to be done out of obedience to Jesus Christ. And if any man knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. It's a matter of whether or not you will be willing to obey your master. Will you forgive others who have hurt you? It's our duty to do that, to choose right or wrong. Number two, our forgiveness of others is our choosing to see people, to look at people, to love people as Christ would love them. I can't love in and of myself in some situations. Neither can you. I can't at times in my life where somebody did something, I couldn't walk away without that anger. But the only thing that could change the heart is to look and see and to say, what would Christ want me to do? How do I see that person? There's multiple books you can read. You can pick up one of those that I had that gave some interesting stories. This is just one. An old woman who discovered this truth the hard way. Her husband was trapped by alcoholism. How can you keep on loving and forgiving her, I asked. It happened late one night. He had come home drunk, cursing and abusive. It was then when I faced his glassy-eyed stare, he lifted his hand to strike at me in anger and hatred and revulsion. All of that flared up within me too. Then I paused and remembered, was it a kind word spoken during our courtship? Was it the tenderness of our wedding vows? Or maybe it was his believing prayer when our first child was born. I don't know, but right there I knew that the man I used to know and love was the real man, not this one, who was a shell of what he used to be. Now I cannot look at him without seeing the emptiness, the desperate captivity that holds upon him. My forgiveness and love are his only link to God. How can I withhold that from him? There, the writer says, See, in the mud of his captivity, she sees a gleam of a pearl. When we have learned to look about us with the loving eyes of Christ, no one is unlovable no one is beyond our compassion. My friend, you, this takes prayer. This takes you saying, God, I want to change. God, I want to have a better spirit. I want to be Christ-like towards that person. Please give me that love and compassion of Jesus. There is another truth that, that we want to point out, and that is this. Our choice to forgive others is choosing to put off and to put away all thoughts or attempts to get even with them. That is, you don't seek revenge. You make that a non-entity, a non-desire, a non-thought in your heart and in your life. But we know this, and the reason we need to talk about is revenge is in every one of our hearts. We know that the way this works is, even as kids, if somebody hit us, what was our initial reaction? Yeah, and not only hit them, but hit them... You betcha, there we are. If somebody says something mean, what's the natural reaction? Say something nastier back. What's the natural reaction? If somebody comes and says, hey, I heard a story about you being told by... You want to tell a story about them? What's the natural reaction? Somebody upsets you with driving. 
somebody's following too close and you're up on 81 and they're on your tail. So you slow down, let them get in front of you, and then what do you do? Get right on their tail. Okay? Not on 81. That's not wise in that one, but... It's just our natural reaction. Somebody snubs us, our natural reaction is, oh, if they don't talk to me, I'm not going to talk to them. Revenge is a part of our character. It's, it's almost like there's the true story that came about some soldiers. They had this little houseboy when they were stationed overseas. And they would tease this boy. They didn't know how hurt he was until one day one of the soldiers, they found the houseboy out in the back. He was crying and crying and crying. And he asked him what was wrong. And he explained that whenever they tease, it hurts him so much because his family had rejected him. And now it feels like they're trying to reject him. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry. He got his buddies together. They brought the little boy in. And they all apologized. They said to the little guy, he said, we're really sorry. We won't do that again. And the little boy in the sniffle says, I'm so glad. Then I won't spit in your soup anymore. Okay. <laughs> Revenge is just a part of, you know, where we're at, where we're, what we want. And we know scriptures tells us, God talks to us. God gives us multiple passages where he said in Old Testament, New Testament, where he repeated, hey, listen, drop the revenge, drop the hatred, drop the idea of getting even, drop the idea of gossiping about somebody else. Stop, stop trying to tear them down just because they tore you down. Stop it. Stop trying to make them hurt as an elderly person because they made you hurt as a child. Stop it. Stop it. Get over it. So what we do is we realize that revenge is the wrong response for us believers. We realize that our duty is supposed to forgive. But if we seek revenge, we lower ourselves. We hurt ourselves. The reality is our vengeance will never be satisfied. It's a hollow hole that, of emotions that will keep on wanting to get more and more until you feel like they hurt like you hurt. And because they don't show it, because they don't express it the way you want them to, you just dig the hole deeper. Revenge is not what we should be doing. Usually what happens is when you seek revenge, who gets hurt? You do. You do. Some hunter put it this way. Believing writer wrote, he says, seeking revenge against somebody is like me taking my rifle and I point it to myself, at myself, and I'm, my intent is to pull the trigger and I hope that the recoil of the rifle will hurt the person I want to hurt. It's just plain dumb. It doesn't work. It's our duty to be forgiving people. There's a story that this this counselor wrote about a true story of an individual who really struggled big time the reason he's struggling is he talks about how he and his wife had such a wonderful marriage they lived out west and everything was going well but then he writes and he says it had all begun so differently than what it is right now the tenderness of our courtship those first expressions of love the excitement when our first son was born born then the next two the ranch was building itself into security. Friendship were knit into the community. There, they shared our, we shared our faith and life in God, and everything was wonderful. Then, the first night when she wouldn't talk. So unlike her, the husband thought. How strange the silence. The children chatted gaily at the supper table. She wore her favorite smile, but something gray, something glass-like had risen between them. Something impenetrable 
a distance that could not be crossed in this marriage, though it left him tired from even trying. Her quietness stretched across the months until it seemed every time he would come home into the house from the desert and arrange that their lives were even more deserted, broken only by the prickly irritations of their daily frictions between them. It became too much for them both. So they turned for help. They turned to the minister. Nothing. They turned to their doctor. Nothing. They turned to a psychiatrist. Nothing. No open communication. Years passed, years in which the silent coexistence embittered their oldest son, driving him to move away from them. The scars began to appear in the other children. The husband spent times crying and pleading, praying, caring, trying to make up for whatever he had done. Then the wife found a new friend, a liquid friend. At times, the alcohol made things easier for a few minutes when she passed through a talkative stage and her words would begin a tentative response to the love and acceptance he had been showing her through all these years. One night, when she had had too much, she began to talk. Once it started, there seemed to be no stopping. A wistful memory of happiness sparkled through her recollections of the very first years. Then she froze in silence. Groping as if against a wall, but feeling for some opening, some crack. He waited, praying, hoping that she would finally speak what's the problem. And then it surfaced. There was a man who used to come by the ranch routinely in his work. He stopped by the house to say hello. For her, it was a friendly break in the lonesome daytime hours with the kids being at school. For him, that man, it soon became something more. For a while, she laughed off his persuasive advances, but then they grew until in a moment of unexpected passion, she yielded. Then again and again, ten years of fear, guilt, clouded her face as she told it. Then in her defiance, she said to her husband to whom she was confessing, but I'll never tell you who it was. And you can't guess. It's the last person who'd ever suspect. Who was it, demanded the husband, feeling hatred begin for ten years he had accepted all this, but now, knowing that his worst fears were true, that a betrayal had taken place, he could not stop the spread of anger going through him. It took control. And day after day he pressured and prodded until one night she finally told him it was his very best friend. It was a man he went to church with. He sat there stunned in disbelief. His best friend, the man he trusted most, the man who had everything he'd wished for in their life, Something soured and died within him. His blood turned bitter. And he said to himself, I'm going to get him. I'll burn him in front of his wife. She's a proud one. I'll make them miserable for all that they've done to me. I'll rub him in the dirt until he can't even look up. All that night, he had wandered bitter blind through the brushy hills and the buttes. Now hot with rage, chilled with hate, morning came. It was Sunday. Why I went to church that morning, I'll never know, he told me later. Something in me I could not hear must have been crying for help. I slipped quietly into the door of the church, and there he stood, my friend, my Benedict Arnold with his hand out, the same old smile, saying with a hello that was just plain saccharine. <laughs> My, health felt, my hand felt frozen to my pocket. I could not get it out. I struggled for what must have been only a fragment of a second. But to me, it was an eternity. I'll never forgive that man I had vowed. 
again and again through that long night before. He'll pay for what he's done. But now all that hatred of my heart, it fought the truth that broke over me as I faced my best friend, my enemy. The truth that I had prayed automatically a thousand times, forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors. And adding salt to the words of Christ, if you will not forgive other people, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. With a sob in my soul, my hand came out and gripped his. I took the hand of the man who had betrayed everything I loved, the man who had stolen our happiness for a few moments of passion. And for the first time in my life, I began to understand what is true forgiveness. I felt a sense of freedom as the unbearable weight of bitterness began to wash out of me. And I was free, free to forgive. And that new freedom not only gave me the strength to go on, it gave my wife and I the resources to find our way through the barrier that had been separating us. When we could say to each other, I accept you just as I did the day we pledged to love and cherish until death do us part. I can never forgive, this man once said. But he discovered a deeper truth in life. When you forgive, you find freedom to move on. Jesus Christ is saying to us, we need to forgive. Let me give you another thought. And I want you to just dwell on this for the day. Think this through. Meditate on it. Jesus is using a story in Matthew 18 about forgiving a debt. Something that you owe. Choosing to forgive someone is basically saying to that person, I cancel the debts you owe me. I cancel the debts you owe me. What we're saying about that is, these types of things, I'm canceling my anger. I'm, I'm going to release you from any penance or pain that I would otherwise exact from you. I cancel it. I cancel. I am willing to let go of whatever I would like you to do so you would realize the hurt that you gave me. I am canceling whatever you owe me. I am canceling, willing to not bring this against you in the future. I cancel the debt. I am canceling any public shame that I could bring against you. I cancel the debt. I'm canceling the debt. I'm releasing you. I'm moving on. I'm no longer holding this grudge against you, mom and dad. I'm no longer being, being the one who is going to say things about you or against you for what you did to me. I cancel the debt. I cancel. I am, I am moving on. Now, is that saying... Think this through, please. Is that saying that that person doesn't have to make any restitution? No. Is that saying that that person is released from every single consequence? Maybe not. Maybe not. What it is saying is this idea. You cancel your own personal feelings of they owe you. That, that isn't saying, okay, that they shouldn't make restitution. If they are truly repentant, they should be willing to make restitution. If they stole from you, if they took your car and crashed your car, if they broke something that, that was precious to you, okay, you're saying, I'm not holding this against them. 
I am not demanding something, but in biblical response on their part, they should make payment. They should make restitution. But you're not the one who is going to force them, be angry with them until they do. It is this idea. They may still have a debt legally. If they have done something to a child and hurt a child, should, they, should there be some public consequences, some legal consequences for the crime that they committed? The answer is yes. Yes. If they ran off with all of our savings, should there be some legal consequence for their crime? Yes, but I am not going to be the bitter one. I am not going to be the one that is, is going to tear down and go after them personally. It is this idea that I am not ex- the one exacting the payment of my own accord, of, of my own anger. However, I move out of the way. God, you deal with them. God, you may do that through the teacher, through the authorities, through my parents. You may do it through the church body. But I am not the one demanding and exacting and insisting with hatred and anger and maliciousness. Because if I keep that attitude, no matter what the authorities do, it will never be enough anyway. We cancel the debt. It is saying this. It is choosing to forgive others time and time and time and time again. How many times are you supposed to forgive your kid who disobeyed you? And they come back and they say, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean to do it. And then they do it again that day. And you go, you just did that an hour ago. I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry, please forgive me. And they come back two hours later. And you said, you just did it two hours ago. Well, it's two hours rather than one. What does the word of Christ tell us? Jesus said, when Peter comes and says, should we forgive seven times? And he thinks he's magnanimous. Jesus says, you need to forgive. Okay. Just this, you know, this odd, strange number. Look at these words. If he trespass against thee seven times in a day, seven times in a day, turns again, says, I repent, you shall forgive him. I marvel at that phrase. What it says to me is that I'm supposed to be willing to forgive many others, not just the people who I like, not just the people who are in my realm. I'm supposed to forgive any and all who have hurt me as they come and they say, let's restore. I look at that and it says, I'm supposed to forgive the same person repeatedly, over and over, even of the same offense, Yes or no? Okay. Even dozens and dozens and dozens of times? 490 plus. Even in one day, I'm supposed to forgive that same person again and again and again? What did Jesus say? If they come, forgive them. Forgive them. You say, but wait a minute, don't they first have to prove themselves? How long does it take to bring forth fruits of repentance? If we exact fruits of repentance, it'll take a whole season 
Jesus didn't say that. He says we're supposed to be willing to forgive. When? Right away? Multiple times? Over and over? So we sit here and we know the truth, but do we do the truth? Is it something that we do? The idea of this text to me is that we're supposed to lean towards being willing to forgive quickly and often rather than leaning for, but what if? What about? I was reading a true story of a character that Joni Tara Erickson, whatever her name is, that Tata, that she wrote about. And it tells the story of this girl by the name of Lisa who's beyond college age. She works away from home, but she's home and she's in her bedroom. While she's in her bedroom, she's going through her memory box. Any of you have those memory boxes? You collected things or a drawer? She has a memory box. And as she's going through it, she is going down memory lane at this most difficult time. There's stickers, badger, badges, knickknacks, family photos. As she went through the items, she smiled at the many memories that each one brought back to her mind. But there was one item in particular she was looking for. She knew it was at the bottom of this box. Finally, when she got to it, there it was, a single sheet of paper folded several times over. She knew that when she unfolded it, she would find crisscrossing lines, so many so that it made 490 boxes. Each box would have a red check mark on them, all 490 of them. She recalled the very day that she had made this graph. She and her younger brother Brent were in Sunday school that morning. He was a couple years younger than her, and the te- but they were in a class together. She, the teacher taught a lesson about Peter asking how many times to forgive, and the teacher said, Jesus told him 70 times 7. Lisa, who was a couple years older but not as bright as her brother Brent, said, how many is that? 490. Brent and Lisa, they were very close despite the fact they were two years apart. And they didn't have much in common. Lisa was pretty. Brent, he looked like a geek with his two large glasses. Brent did really good in school, whereas Lisa had to work really hard just to get a C. His memory was really sharp. Hers quite dull. She loved to play sports. He focused on music. After years of lessons, he had become really, really good on the oboe. His teachers kept saying he was a natural and probably could become a professional musician. But the two of them, they were still very close. So after Sunday school that day, they played some basketball in the driveway, and Lisa, really wanting to win as it was getting close, she used her elbow to accidentally hit Brent in the face, which allowed her to drive the basket and to make the winning layup. She was excited, but when she turned, she found Brent down on one knee with a bloody nose. She immediately felt bad, said she was sorry. She said this, it was a cheap shot and I shouldn't have done it. Please forgive me. Brent quietly agreed, it was cheap, but I forgive you. And then he smiled and said, you've got just 489 more. (laughs) At first, Lisa was confused. What do you mean? You remember what we learned in Sunday school today? You're supposed to forgive someone 490 times. I just forgave you. So you now have 480 times left. They both laughed, headed indoors, and after supper, they decided to play the game of Battleship. All went well for a while, but Lisa found herself losing. She decided she would peek over to Brent's side, cheat just a little, to see where he had placed a couple of his ships. She got them. But when she tried to peek a second time, he caught her. 
You're cheating. I can't believe you're cheating. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Would you please forgive me? Okay, I forgive you, but don't do it again. And now you just have 488, he said with a giggle. That evening, Lisa decided to make a graph with 490 boxes. She showed it to Brent. We will keep track of every time I mess up and you forgive me. She marked two of them right away in red. These are for the two times you forgave me today. He said, you don't need to keep a record. Yes, I do. You're always forgiving me because I mess up so often. I want to keep track to see if I can do better as time goes by. Just let me do this. And so began months of charting Lisa's bloopers and blunders against Brent. 449 was the time she put too much bleach in the wash machine and ruined his favorite shirt. 418 was the time she told his classmates he had a crush on a certain girl. 393 was for the time she forgot to bring home his English book when he was sick, so he couldn't study for the test the next day, and he got a B. 255 was for the time she lost his car keys soon after he got his license. 180 was for the time she put a dent in his car when she had borrowed it. After years of improvement, Lisa finally reached 490 when they were both out of high school. She said to him as she showed him the page, I guess that's the end of me ever screwing up. He said, yeah, right, as if you won't mess up ever again. She remembered how they laughed and laughed. But Lisa did make her 491st offense against Brett. It was the next day. It was a big one, too. Brent had become really good, everything his music teachers had said. He had been invited to come out for a one-time tryout to one of New York City's great orchestras. The tryout was to be held sometime in this next couple weeks. They were going to call and give him the exact date and time. It was the fulfillment of all of his dreams. But he never got a chance to try out. He was out of the house the day the phone call came. So was Mom, so was Dad. And the only one in the house was Lisa, who was running out the door to get to work because she was late. She answered the phone, heard the information, but she was in such a hurry she didn't take time to write it down. Yeah, yeah, I got it, 2.30 on the 10th. And out the door she ran. She had every intention to remember and give Brent the message, but she didn't. In fact, she forgot all about it until several days went by. Mom and Brent were talking about how odd it was that they still hadn't heard from the orchestra center about the time and the date of that audition. That's when Lisa entered the room and suddenly remembered the call she had taken. Immediately, her face went ashen. What's the matter, Lisa? You look sick, Mom said. She began to sob and sob. Through her tears, she told Brent what she had done, how she had taken the call but failed to give him the message. And now the day for the audition had just passed by. You're joking, right? This is one of your stupid jokes, Brent said in stunned response. She sobbed and shook her head. It was true. Brent ran out of the kitchen without another word. He locked himself in his room and would not talk to anyone that day or the next day. When Lisa knocked on the door that night and the next day and would apologize again and again through the door, there was no response. She, that second evening, went to her room and cried. She had ruined Brent's life and dreams, and there was nothing she could do to change it. She had hurt him so many times. She suddenly knew what she wanted to do. She would leave home that evening, stay away from her family, so she would never hurt them again. She packed her clothes, snuck out of the house to her car, and off she drove to the nearest city, Boston. Two days later, she got a job waitressing. Soon she had an apartment. 
Her parents tried to reach her, but it took several months before there was finally some communication. And when they would ask her to come home, she would just say, it's too late. I've ruined Brent's life. I don't want to hurt him ever again. I'm not coming back. Another couple months went by, and a family friend came to the restaurant, not knowing that Lisa worked there. Lisa, what a surprise. They talked a little bit. The woman then was all conversing, and she wrapped it up with this comment. She says, I'm so sorry to hear about what happened to your brother. Such a terrible tragedy. But I guess there's some comfort knowing that he didn't suffer very long. Lisa had never known. What? What? She couldn't believe it. Her brother Brent was dead. She immediately went home that night. And now here she was sitting in her bedroom, going through her memory box, looking for the chart of Brent's forgiveness. He would never talk to her again. The auto accident had taken his life. But that's when she found something that he had left her. The chart, as she pulled it out, she realized it was different. As she unfolded it, she saw lines that were straight and exact, not her squiggly ones. And this one was not filled with many red checks. Instead, there was a note folded inside, and it read, Dear Lisa, it was you who kept count all those years, not me. But if you're stubborn enough to still keep count, here's a new chart that I've made for you. So far, there's just one check. That's number 491. Forgiven. Forgiven forever. You've still got hundreds and hundreds more to go, and I will love you always, Brent. My friend, do you have that spirit? Are you willing to do that? Father, help us not to be hearers of forgiveness, but help us to be doers. Thank you for the forgiveness that is presented in Jesus Christ. Help us to do our duty. And when we examine this some more this evening and delve even deeper into how to forgive, help us then to practice it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, when we get together with family and friends and even those relatives that drive us nuts. Father, help us to be children that portray you to the best of our abilities. We pray in Jesus' name. My friend, if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ is your Savior, I'm going to stay here at the front. I will gladly share with you the Bible, show you some verses or get somebody else to do that because you need to know what Jesus said. These things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's talk. While others are visiting, come, let's talk. Thanks for being here. See you tonight as we continue this series and this sermon.